In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Nathan Seelove. First off, we want to thank our great listeners for a very warm welcome to the podcast universe last week. Yeah, we just started it and we got a pretty good amount of downloads. And hey, we're not even on iTunes yet. Yeah, so if uh, hopefully iTunes gets its stuff together and we can get up on there soon. Um, if you haven't, uh, like us on Facebook. We have an Instagram as well. Um, and obviously you're listening to us on the on Podbean or um, Spotify, but make sure to keep up with us. Yeah, exactly. So what's on the agenda for today, Michael? So today we're going to start off by just recapping a little bit of the impeachment news. We're not trying to become the impeachment podcast, but it just happens to be some of the biggest headlines right now. I mean, Trump makes it really difficult to not talk about his (laughs) bullcrap. I mean, not just bullcrap. We're talking about impeaching the president of the United States. Yeah, it's it's kind of important. Uh, um, and we're also going to talk about how the Fed is lowering interest rates, and we're going to talk about how that can affect you. Yep, and then we'll go into uh, some primary news, specifically talk about the big news of Elizabeth Warren's health care plan. Yeah, but before all that, let's talk about the theme for today. Michael, what is our theme for today? Today, we're bringing you the theme of groupthink. And this is something we'll try to do with each episode is tie some key news elements together with a specific idea. So Nathan, why don't you walk us through how you teach groupthink in your class? Yeah. So groupthink usually happens when you're you're in a group, obviously, and everybody expresses the same opinion, even though they might not necessarily agree with the same opinion. And this often happens because one person expressed their opinion first. Sometimes it might be the leader. Sometimes it might just be the person who decides to speak first. So one example of this, say there's a bunch of people sitting around a table. All right. The leader says, hey, you know what I think we should do? We should, I don't know. I'm just making this up here. I think that we should abandon our Kurdish allies. You know, just abandon them. Yeah. Yeah. Just making it up. And to be fair, you know, you discount that by saying, I'm not, you know, I'm just making this up. But then you say it first and you say it the loudest and it ends up being the narrative. Yeah. And someone else in the room, say there's one person in the room who's thinking about that, hears that and says, that is a terrible idea. That's a stupid idea. Why would you say that? But before they get a chance to say something, someone in the room stands up and says, I like it. That's great. We should do that. And then another person stands up and says, you know, Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And all of a sudden, we've got a consensus forming without a discussion. Yeah. And people just start agreeing with each other because they're a bunch of yes men. And the original person, if you're the person who's sitting in there and you're the only person that hasn't expressed agreement, even if you disagree with it, you're inclined to think maybe something's wrong with me. Maybe I'm just wrong. And importantly, not sharing an opinion that you have or a perspective that you have uh, means that it will often go totally silent and will be perceived as tacit consent. Yeah. Groupthink often results in bad decisions being made. All right. You need, whether you're a leader or just a member of a group, you need to have people challenging you. So let's talk about the four ways in which you can prevent groupthink when you're communicating within a group. Number one, you can have a devil's advocate. Now, 
When I say devil's advocate, uh, now I don't mean that guy in your class, because it's usually a guy, who stands up and says, hold on, let me just play devil's advocate on Jim Crow. Uh, that's not who I'm talking about. What if women didn't have rights for their bodies? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That That's not what I'm talking about. The devil's advocate is simply the person that tries to create an intellectually honest version of the other side to demonstrate what would it look like if the common consensus were wrong. And if they're able to make a better argument, then they might be worth listening to. Number two, you should have a rule that makes it so the leader speaks last. Because if the person who has the most power hears everybody else out first, then there's less pressure on them to think, how do I demonstrate my own agreement with the leader? Number three, don't chastise disagreement. Now, that when I say that, I don't mean that you should count all opinions as being equal. What if women didn't have any rights for their body? Exactly. You don't count all opinions as being equal. If someone says something you disagree with, you argue with them. But the mere fact that they disagreed, you don't throw a chair at them or anything. And number four, everybody should get a chance to speak. Everybody should get a chance to speak their mind. So those are the four ways that we talk about in my communication class for how we overcome groupthink. And so today we're going to talk about, we're going to try to, try to weave the theme of groupthink through talking about a few uh, key t topics in the news, specifically talking about the way that individuals have been able to make their voices heard and break the narrative in a way that um, is helpful and is productive for the conversation. Let's talk about impeachment. My favorite, my favorite topic. <laughs> so uh, uh, last Thursday, uh, the House formally voted to formalize the impeachment inquiry. The measure passed 206, uh, 232 to 196 with no Republican support. Two Democrats joined to the Republicans. And one also thing of note, uh, one independent in the House, Justin Amash, who is formerly a Republican, joined the Democrats in supporting the measure. Now, did he happen to be a Republican by or uh, independent by choice or was he excommunicated? <laughs> he, he was basically excommunicated. Like he, he was the first Republican that came out. And I, I think at this point, the only Republican that came out and said, yeah, no, this guy's a crook. We need to impeach him. He's he's horrible. And as soon as he did this, he just got devoured by Trump, by other Republicans, and he ended up switching his party allegiance. And keep in mind, this guy was one of the beginning founders of the Freedom Caucus. This is not a moderate guy. This guy is a very conservative individual, and he's looking at this evidence saying, no, the president's a criminal. So what they passed was H.R. 660. Yeah. And what the, one, of the thing, one of the important things to point out with this is this wasn't the actual impeachment vote, right? This was a vote that was trying to lay out some of the rules for how the impeachment inquiry would go. Now, one important thing about this that I really like is the fact that they give equal time for questioning of witnesses to Democrats and Republicans in the committee meetings, and they also give them an allotted amount of time rather than giving each individual member of the committee, like, you have this amount of time to question the witness. Sure. Which makes it more of a conversation, more of a productive 
discuss like a productive questioning. Yeah, exactly. Otherwise, I mean, politicians are egotistical. They're going to take any chance they can to do a grandstand. And you want people to actually be asking questions. You don't want someone to be like, let me talk about how I'm against bad things and I'm for good things. Yeah, if you've ever listened to a testimony, you often uh, see the poor witness sitting there going, was there a question in there? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Importantly, also, H.R. 660 uh, did not, like, start the inquiry. The, no, the inquiry there have been inquiries that have been going on as part of the normal course. Not No, not in the normal course. The Trump-adjusted course for, <laughs> <laughs> or for conducting uh, investigations in the House. So it's not like we're starting over from ground one. So if your question was, you know, well, haven't we been looking into this for a while? All of that stuff is still part of the record and is still part of the same inquiry. Exactly. Exactly. So there's one there's one response to this that I just want to I just want to talk about because this this is just so ridiculous. So um, the Republicans are standing firm in defense of Donald Trump because there's literally nothing that he can do that will make them turn against him. And they're not addressing substance. They're not saying, oh no, it wasn't actually quid pro quo because blank, or it wasn't actually soliciting help from a foreign government because blank. All they're doing is going after the process. And when you need, when you're at the point where you got no argument, that's what you do. You go after the process. And you go after the individuals that are conducting the process and the witnesses that are speaking about the process. You attack everything except the argument itself. Exactly. So uh, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy uh, from California tried to say that the Democrats were abusing a secret process and selective leaks to portray the president's legitimate actions as an impeachable offense. You know who the first selective leak was that gave us the evidence that started this whole thing? Who, Nathan? It was the president of the United States. In response to the whistleblower complaint, he's the one that released the transcript that showed him clearly asking a foreign government to investigate a political opponent. And it was it was completely for political gain. And that it also showed pretty clear evidence of quid pro quo as well. That came from the president. This wasn't a selective leak. This was from the president himself. Nathan, that's just how deep the deep state goes. <laughs> it's so deep, the, the opposition to President Trump, that it's gone all the way to the president. <laughs> so, so the president's part of the deep state. Like they've gotten into his brain. Unwittingly, he's he is. unwittingly part of the deep in state. all of his genius. <laughs> he's accidentally incriminated himself yeah. again. <laughs> yeah. So, so why don't we talk about one of the newer testimonies we also heard last week with with regard to this impeachment inquiry? Yeah. So last week we heard um, from Alexander uh, Vindman, who is a lieutenant colonel um, and is part of the National Security Council. Um, Purple Heart recipient. Yeah, he is He is a hero, a war hero, if ever there was one. He's spent uh, two decades in service of the United States, and since 2008 has been foreign area officer specializing in Eurasia, which basically means that he um, helps administer and execute our foreign policy um, for the, like, the Eurasia region. So he delivered testimony. So let's start off by saying... He is a nonpartisan civil servant 
for his entire life. Yeah, he's it's, worked under Democrats and Republicans. Because that's what it means to execute our interests abroad. Um, and so he gave testimony last week, and, and one of the things that's been released were his opening statements. And there were some really important things that kind of echoed some of our comments from last week that we wanted to review with you guys. Um, and so first off uh, is that um, when we talked last week about Trump's request, his, his attempt to leverage the uh, aid of the United States to execute his personal interests abroad and therefore undermining foreign policy, a lot of those details were laid out in Binman's testimony. For example, um, the president of the Ukraine, Zelensky, is a hugely uniting force for Ukraine, which is divided among Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian-speaking and Russian-speaking populations. And he helped unite the whole country for the really the first time. Um, and one of the key points of his platform was anti-corruption. So we're talking about the president of the United States basically trying to undermine another president in their domestic sphere. At the same time, Ukraine's a really important ally. We're talking about a neighbor of Russia who has been increasing their overt, aggressive foreign policy against the United States for a long time. And Ukraine is an increasingly westernizing, increasingly um, strong ally of the United States that the president tried to totally undermine yeah. for his personal gain. Um, and so, and, and on top of that, I want to point out also that as part of his testimony, he indicated something that wasn't totally clear to me last week is that the phone call was not actually like the first time that this real pattern of um, corruption between Trump and the Trump uh, organization and Ukraine has existed. Actually, on July 10th, um, there was a meeting between Trump officials and um, representatives of Ukraine and um, the representatives of Ukraine mentioned that they would like to put together a meeting between Zelensky and Trump. And the Trump officials quickly got very quiet and then said that, well, that could be possible should they conduct the investigations that they were asking for. Yeah. So we're talking about like, this is, this is a pattern of activity in order to get them to conduct this investigation, which Vindman specifically said had no grounds in national security whatsoever. Yeah, it was purely for Trump's own political gain. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the things that has been really disgusting about this story is the way in which people have been treating Vindman. Like, people have straight up, people have straight up tried to make arguments that, oh, he was born in Ukraine— Therefore, he doesn't have the United States' best interests in mind. He has the best interests of Ukraine. He prefers Ukraine. You know when he, you know how old he was when he immigrated from Ukraine how old to the he? United States? He was three years old. <laughs> Apparently, he's that's a how long agent. it takes to become a sleeper agent. <laughs> yeah, I guess they're very effective over there. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a hell of a commitment. I mean, they had some crazy foresight if that was their plan. We're talking about people that made birther arguments about yeah, Obama, though. Like exactly. That. Anyway, just wanted to tie in some of those elements that we talked about last week. And as more information is coming out, we're seeing that this narrative is becoming more and more clear. So, Nathan, how does this relate to groupthink? Well, so first off, one thing that's important to point out when we're talking about groupthink in this context is, are we the ones who are doing the groupthink? 
Like by virtue of the fact that we are, you know, we're more progressive, uh, we're more on the Democratic side, we don't like Trump. Are we the ones who are actually doing the groupthink? That's an important question to ask yourself whenever you're forming your political opinions. Exactly. And in some ways, from an outsider's perspective, you could see certain aspects in which that could be forming. So two Democrats ended up voting against the impeachment inquiry. So remember we talked about one of the ways of reducing uh, groupthink is to not necessarily chastise disagreement. So let's look at why. Well, both of them were from districts in which Trump won. And it is very clear in a lot of ways that the reason why they voted against it is because they're trying to maintain good faith among their Trump voting uh, voting district. So if that's the reason, then the reason why they voted for uh, voted against it is not necessarily as a I'm being intellectually honest. It's very much I'm being intellectually dishonest. Also, the Republican arguments, because we do need to look at the Republican arguments, um, have primarily focused on the process, on attacking the witnesses and not actually addressing the issues themselves. This is one way that you this is one way that you can look at it and say, if these are the arguments that they're going for, that objectively at face value are bad arguments, and they're all making them, then the groupthink is far more likely to be on the Republican side. Sure. And if you happen to be an extreme intellectual disciplinarian with yourself, you can try to make arguments to the contrary as well. Yeah, that's a process called steel manning. Create the most strong, create the strongest argument from the other side and try to levy it against your own arguments, which I'm sure is something that we'll probably try to do on this podcast from time to time as much as we can. Luckily on this podcast, Nathan is the man of steel. I'm more <laughs> like the Michelin man. Ah, that's so nice. Another kind of hilarious contribution to our discussion about groupthink. And this story is actually what inspired me to originally say we should make the topic groupthink is uh, something that John Kelly said in a recent interview. John Kelly was uh, Trump's former chief of staff. A bunch of people tried to say that he was the adult in the room. And look, this was no, like John Kelly is no progressive resistance member. He's got a lot of very problematic uh, beliefs about immigration and about foreign policy, but he at least has a general grasp on reality and facts. So in this interview, he said, he was talking about when they were trying to find someone to take his place. He said, "What I, he was like, what I told Trump was, whatever you do, don't hire a yes man, someone who won't tell you the truth. Don't do that. Because if you do, I believe you will be impeached. He ended up being right. But Trump's response to that, he, he responded to uh, John Kelly saying this. He said, John Kelly never said that. He never said anything like that. If he would have said that, I would have thrown him out of the office. <laughs> <laughs> so in response to being told, don't hire a yes man, someone who will just do whatever you tell them to do, his response was, if someone said that, I would throw him out of the office. What am I going to do, not hire a yes man? <laughs> if and I then, wanted to have a, a no man, I'd hire Melania. <laughs> and the best, the best response to this was White House Press Secretary Stephanie Grisham, who said, I worked with John Kelly 
And he was totally unequipped to handle the genius of our great president. Good Lord. (laughs) This is not normal. (laughs) This is not normal. This is like, that is, have you, remember when we watched the interview together? Sure. You know? Uh, Cause 'cause, like I, I, you were the, you were the first person I saw that movie with. Mm -hmm. Like the scene where they were like, he He does not, he does not poop or pee. (laughs) Yeah, this is that. This, this is, is that. John like, Kelly couldn't look into the shining star that is Donald Trump. Yeah, the genius. The genius president who thinks windmills cause cancer, who thinks vaccines cause autism, who thinks that climate change is a hoax from the Chinese government, who thought that Frederick, Frederick Douglass was still alive. And who thought that his best chance at exonerating himself from a whistleblower <laughs> was to provide... <laughs> solid evidence for his criminal activity to the intelligence committee. I mean, what a stable genius, right? It's it's the stability that's astounding. <laughs> so this comes down to the idea that any leader in any position of power should always have people in the room that they know they will have disagreements with. This is what I mean by hiring an actual devil's advocate. In fact, in my opinion, every single elected representative on every level should have one person on that staff whose job it is to just disagree with the representative, whose job it is to research and make intellectual and honest arguments about why something, a decision that the representative might be about to make could potentially be a bad decision. I think every single representative should have that. But Nathan, that would take so much maturity and (laughs) confidence in your ability. Yeah, it would, wouldn't it? You wouldn't even be able to be a petulant, low self-esteem, insincere fool. Exactly. And heaven forbid they give a better argument that makes you change your mind. That would be awful. Flip-flopper. So now we're going to bring a new segment to you called Tips for Good. We wanted to bring um, small things, small behavior changes, small things you could keep in mind that when done on aggregate by everybody who listens, all the millions of people that will listen to this these episodes. God forbid. Um, that can really make have a positive impact. So small stuff you can do, little bits of information, little things that when you go to throw something that should be recycled into the trash, you remember, oh, actually, I can recycle this. And you put it in the right bin. Yeah. And the idea behind this segment is not to necessarily say, if you're not doing this, you're a terrible person. No, no. It's to say, here is something small that if you incorporate it into your everyday life, makes you a slightly better person. Yeah. Just little tips to do good. So this week, we wanted to talk about handicapped bathrooms. If that's not a niche topic, I don't know what is. Yeah. So, and this is something that's personal to me because I have a disability and I have a service dog. And when it comes to trying to go to the bathroom, I have to do it a lot. I have to pee quite a lot. And it is incredibly difficult for me to stand at urinals because my dog can, my dog is sometimes awkwardly next to another person. So I often have to use the stall. 
And I don't know if you've ever seen a person try to fit a dog into the regular size stall, but it's not a pretty sight. Dogs can't stand up to turn around. They yeah. have to turn around horizontally. Exactly. And stalls aren't wider than dogs are long. <laughs> so I am someone that because of my disability needs that extra room in order to comfortably be able to relieve myself. And the problem is people are often taking that because they want the extra room. And I'll be honest with you guys. Until Nathan started talking to me about this, it did not occur to me at all. Yeah. So one, so a few things to keep in mind with this. That handicap stall is not just for people in wheelchairs. I mean, obviously people in wheelchairs, but there are also some people with sensory disabilities that make it more difficult for them to be in tight spaces, people with service dogs, people with several different disabilities. So what I want to say is if you don't need it because of a disability, please don't use it. Just use one of the other stalls or use the urinal or use whatever else is available because I can only use that one. And I often have to wait a pretty long time for that to be available for me just to use the bathroom. I think that's a pretty small thing that I certainly would be happy to do. And ever since Nathan mentioned this to me, I've avoided using the uh, handicap stall. Yep. And that is our tip for good. Just the tip. So we warned you, now we're going to talk about the Fed lowering interest rates last week. So last week, the Fed or Federal Reserve Bank cut interest rates for the third time this year. Uh, they cut about a quarter of a percent down to a range of 1.5% to 1.75%. At this point, they've actually reversed out all of the interest rate increases that they achieved in uh, 2018. Uh, Nathan? Oh, he's, he's falling asleep. Uh, mostly because... Oh, 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 oh. Uh, yes, Fed, Fed, very important, very important. Uh, <clears throat> so why does this matter? Obviously, Nathan doesn't think so. <laughs> well, of course it matters. It's just really boring. It does seem really boring. We're going to try to make it a little fun. Um, we're going to do, we're going to talk about exactly like what that means for you guys, the implications. And we're also going to do a very quick primer on kind of what the fed is, what monetary policy is and how those relate to your actual lives. So I'm far from an authority on the subject and no one should take this as personal financial advice. I am not a financial advisor, nor am I a fiduciary, but I have a degree in finance and I work in the finance industry. Um, I've worked in business for a number of years, and this is, and um, I've studied economics a lot. And this is kind of an area of interest and passion for me. And I bought bubble gum today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. We'll get I, to I, Nathan's I, passion with healthcare later. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I do know a thing or two about this as well. But uh, Michael is definitely more the uh, the expert in this. So first of all, what's the Fed? So the Fed is the central bank of the United States. Basically, it's the government's bank to other banks. Um, they do a lot of things that are very, very important. But what we're talking about today is one of their most important functions, which is the administration of monetary policy. Monetary policy is the influence of the amount of money that's in the economy at any given time. And the whole goal, the name of the game of monetary policy is consistent slow economic growth. Wait, so we don't want unprecedented explosive economic growth? I thought that was a great thing. I mean, the president keeps telling me that that's a great thing. 
we do not want unprecedented economic growth. That's called the economy overheating. Yeah. We have a few examples of that, like 2008, 1930. When the economy is going too fast, it makes it impossible for us to course correct. When the economy is growing too fast, small problems with the economic structure, like a little bit of an overlap in the mortgage market that happened to be sold to banks that were using that as a source of cheap funding, those small issues can be blown hugely out of whack. Yeah. And that's why you often have boom bust cycles, like, you know, the roaring 20s led to the Great Depression. Yeah. And at the same time, also, like, as a consumer and as a business, stability is really important. You want to be able to plan for your future, and businesses want to be able to plan for their capital allocation. So the whole, the whole point is let's create a future that is brighter than today, but that we can reasonably predict. An important takeaway here is the Fed does not control the economy. Control makes it sound way too easy. The, the economy is way too big for that. Way too big, way too multivariate. And what the Fed has are more like instruments in a control panel on a ship. On, on a big warship, the pilot is actually in a windowless armored room. And all that he or she has is the instruments telling he or she about the world around them. And that's really the position the Fed is in, where the tide is the boom and bust cycle. The weather is all of the stuff that's flying at the ship. And the businesses, the consumers, the uh, consumer agencies are all tons of tiny, tiny boats all around the ship. And the whole point is to get to your goal, slow, consistent economic growth. But the challenge is actually getting there without destroying the ships around you through all the storms, through all the tides, and all the unpredictability. So one of the key ways that the Fed does this is using monetary policy to control inflation. So inflation is just like when prices get too high, right? So what does that have to do with this? So inflation is actually a relationship between the amount of money in the economy and the amount of goods in the economy. So if you think about GDP as the measure of overall value in your economy, you want a stable relationship between the amount of value and the amount of dollars that measures that value. And so inflation is the case where there are more dollars or a growing number of dollars in relationship to the same or not as quickly growing basket of goods. So the way that is related to interest rates is actually the fact that inflation is not just printing money. If that were the case, it'd be pretty easy to control it. Yeah. Inflation is actually more volatile because of the lending market. Inflation, uh, the amount of money in the economy is all of the dollars plus all of the dollars of lending that's out there discounted by the cost of lending. So all those dollars of lending enable you and me and businesses to spend money, yeah. influencing the relationship between the cost of goods um, and, the, and the actual goods. So if inflation gets too high, then you raise the interest rate, right? Yeah, exactly, because that makes it more expensive to lend. It disincentivizes you and me from going out and spending a bunch of money because it's more costly to borrow. It disincentivizes businesses from doing that and lowers uh, the overall presence of money in the economy. Yeah, so that would mean then if you were trying to control or prevent a recession, you would lower the interest rate. Exactly, and that's one of the big takeaways that we're emphasizing for you guys today is that when the Fed lowers interest rates, especially consistently and multiple times, 
It's because they're uncertain about the future. It can often be a signal that they think an economic slowdown is coming. Yeah. Now, now, this most recent time is mostly in relationship to the trade war with China and uh, global uncertainty about global economies, specifically re with relationship between Brexit and the European Union. But it's important to note that they've lowered re interest rates three times this year. They've reversed out all of the interest rate increases that they created in 2018. All the confidence in 2018 as a result of that great economy, they're now starting to lose. And so a big takeaway for you guys is that that's a good signal for you to start thinking about the fact that a economic slowdown is coming. And so you should plan your finances accordingly. So I was talking to my dad about this earlier today, and he was actually arguing that a major part of this is a, is a more political angle. So an election's coming up, and when you lower the interest rate, that means that people have a better Ill ability to uh, borrow money. And that seems to have a very uh, visual positive impact on people's lives. And if the Fed is doing that under Trump, then it makes Trump look better. So what function could that potentially play in this? Yeah, you've probably heard it a few times, Trump touting the amount of growth that's occurred under his administration. He actually does try to pressure the Fed to lower interest rates. He, did, he has done that throughout his presidency. It's important to note that the Fed is an independent federal agency. At least it's supposed to be. At least it's supposed to be, but they take their work really, really, really seriously. If they mess up, if they steer the ship wrong, they destroy a tremendous amount of value. They absolutely destroy lives. I'm not saying that they can't be influenced politically, but in an already humming economy, it would have to take a really evil group of people in order to pull this off. And for the most part, the people in the Fed, the people in a lot of government agencies are administrators. They are people that are interested in the working and functioning of the government. And they may not be the people that are creating the policy, but they are the people that are creating the models. Um, importantly also is that the impending economic slowdown is verging on a consensus in the financial community. Yeah. So if there is something political about when this happened, it's fairly well aligned with the overall expectation that we're heading into the down cycle. Right. So what you're saying is I shouldn't have fallen asleep at the beginning of this. You definitely shouldn't have fallen asleep because I'm about to tell you about something that might hit your wallet even harder. All right, go for it. So right now, the lowering of the interest rate is going to lower the prime rate, which is actually going to lower your rate of borrowing. So um, it may not hit your credit card right now, but if you were to open up a new credit card, you'll be able to borrow at a lower rate. This is really good if you've got fixed rate loans and loans that you can refinance. Um, I don't know if it, it makes sense for your specific loans right now, but if you've got, say, a mortgage or a lot of student debt, you may be able to refinance for a lower rate. That's excellent. But if we're thinking about the relationship between your ability to borrow and our point in the economic cycle, this is likely not a good time for you to go out and borrow a bunch more money specifically because you may need that open credit line when the economy contracts and unforeseen circumstances start to come to fruition. If companies are going through layoffs, 
people are going to need more credit in order to cover their day-to-day -day expenses. And so you're not going to want to have that all used up because the interest rates are low now and you can get a really good cost on, on um, getting a loan on a new TV. And the last point is actually more about the relationship between the interest rate and the economy at large right now. So we're talking about an economy that's at record low unemployment um, and is with a, rel with a relatively low interest rate. Businesses are in a good place to be investing in their employees. So if you've been putting off asking for a raise, if you've been putting off um, you know, making a job change, like this is a good time. We're talking about in most industries. Now, it should be, you should think about this in an industry-specific way. But we're talking about really low unemployment, which gives you as, an, as a uh, worker a lot of leverage. And we're talking about a time when people want to be investing in their employees. So be a little bit wary because this could all change really quickly if we go into a contraction. But ultimately, like you're in a good position right now, maybe not in a few months, but right now, to get the most out of your job. All right, and now it's time for our favorite segment, Ass Hat of the Week. So, Michael, who is our heavyweight this week? This week, our ass hat is Ed Hussman. Who's he, Ed Hussman? He is a school board member in Sultan, Washington. More like Ed Assman. Nice. <laughs> Stay down, Ed. <laughs> so, what did Ed Hussman do? Ed decided to pipe up at a school board meeting inquired about why they were spending so much money on special education, to which the chairman of the um, school board replied, we're required to educate these students. Hussman said, but then maybe they're not educatable. The chairman responded, we have to educate every student that's brought to our school, required by law. Hussman responded, some kids aren't educatable. And the chairman responded, that has nothing to do with it. So the news site, which is an NBC affiliate, reached out to Hussman to ask him to clarify this. Because, you know, maybe he just misspoke, right? Sure. Yeah. So he said... Even though he said uneducatable... Maybe he just mixed three misspoke. Three times. You know? So he said, if we're spending that much money, what's the possibility of the end result? Will these children be normal children to take their place in society? So... Here's one of the really screwed up parts of this. Now, he, he listed this as sort of a defense of what, he's, of what he was trying to say, but I, I think this makes it even worse. He apparently, his wife had adopted a special needs son who was born with brain damage, who unfortunately passed away at the age of 38, and he referred to his own son as being uneducatable. And he then said, if you're going to spend that amount of money, that takes away from the other students that are going to function in society at some point in time. So I'm a special needs student, or I, I was when I was a student. Uh, I'm on the autism spectrum. And uh, let me just say, I was uneducatable. I'd say. Yeah. In fact, I was so uneducatable, I had to stop at a master's degree. You were so uneducatable that they had to put you in charge of educating educatable kids. Exactly. They had to stop educating me and make me do the educating. Yeah, that's pretty bad. It's a shame. It's a shame you're not contributing to society. So one of the highlights of this story, though, one of the nice things about this story is that there is a woman who heard these comments 
Her name is Heidi Dawson. And she has now decided to run a write-in campaign in order to unseat Huspin. And that's the type of thing that we really like to see. You know, you hear something from an elected official that pisses you off, piss on them. Um, so, so we want to say congratulations to Heidi for standing up, and congratulations to Ed for being our Ass Hat of, of the Week. week. And the final story that we want to talk about is with regard to the primaries. First off, one very quick bit of primary news. We have another one biting the dust. R.I.P. to the man that we all loved back in Texas. And then stopped loving once he started... Wet wet noodling on the primary (laughs) stage. Uh, Mr. Beto O'Rourke. Yep. Um, Beto O'Rourke's story is one that's just really sad to me. Because he was such a good candidate in the Senate. Like, like when he was trying to run for Senate, like he was being an unapologetic progressive. He was doing actual grassroots organizing. He went to every single county. I remember watching, the, I actually watched the debate that he, one of the debates that he had with Ted Cruz, and he did a baller job. Like, and he had one of the, he had an amazing flip uh, of voters in Texas. Yeah, it was something like what? Yeah, yeah. So in the governor, in the same the same race, in the governor's race, the Republican won by uh, I believe it was twelve points. Beto only lost by two points against Ted Cruz, an established yeah, Republican an established there. politician. Now, in a to state be fair, that goes red consistently. Yeah. Now, to be fair, Ted Cruz is not the most popular person. Sure. But still, he was an established he was an established incumbent, and Beto O'Rourke came really close to beating him. Running on really honest, progressive yeah. ideas. He was pro-Medicare for all. He was pro-free college tuition. Uh, he had a great agenda on climate change. And So then what happened? Well, uh, he got some new advisors that told him, hey, you know all those things that made you really, really popular running in Texas? You need to not do any of those things. And be a standard politician, don't answer things honestly, beat around the bush, and stop advocating for Medicare for all. And this was very apparent in the first debate where he was asked a straight-up question about marginal tax rates. He was asked, do you support the idea of a 70% marginal tax rate on the very rich? And look, if he had said, I don't support that, here's what I would prefer, that would be one thing. You know, if he if he made a legitimate argument of I don't think it should be that high or, you know, I, I think it should be right here. That would be one thing. But he just beat around the bush and did not answer the question and was like, oh, yeah, no, I I believe in raising taxes on the rich. And they're like, OK, but how much? Well, I believe in raising taxes on the rich. That is the thing that people hate about politicians when they don't answer the question because they are afraid of the political ramifications. People want people to be honest and he turned against that, and it was really disappointing. And that is why he stopped doing well. It's because he stopped being himself. And he ran out of money. And he ran out of money. <laughs> that too. Chicken uh, and egg. Which is another. Which is another major problem with the system. So, uh, honestly, I I hope that he reconsiders not running in Texas for Senate. I think that he does have potential. I don't want it to sound like a. I dislike him as a person or I dislike him as a candidate or I don't highly respect him, but he really, he really messed this up. And maybe that's a point of experience. I mean, maybe it's a kind of a a point that we talked about last week with principle versus strategy. And I mean, 
it's you will love to see when a really principled individual turns that principle into a good strategy. And it's really frustrating when someone both loses their principle and their strategy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So also in primary news. This um, is the big one. This is the big one. Elizabeth Warren has released her Medicare for All plan. So Nathan, you want to walk us through the plan? Yeah, well, uh, no. (laughs) Because if I did that, we'd be here for another hour. Um, You see... We're probably at some point going to have an episode specifically dedicated just to healthcare policy because it's really complicated. But I would like to give some of the major highlights of Elizabeth Warren's policy and juxtapose one major difference that it has from Bernie Sanders's Medicare for All policy. First off, I would like to establish this is Medicare for All. Some people were worried that Elizabeth Warren would release a plan that wasn't Medicare for All, that was something closer to uh, Medicare for All Who Wants It or uh, a public option. This is Medicare for All. So Nathan, real quick, what exactly is Medicare for All? What does it mean? And maybe don't talk about how it's different from the other plans, but exactly like well, what it means. Well, actually, there's one very simple difference that I can kind of bring up uh, right now. So one of the big differences between Medicare for All and Medicare for All Who Wanted or public options is a stipulation that whatever is provided by the single payer, in this case, Medicare, cannot be provided also by private insurance companies. Now, this is an important point because this is the point that is often discussed in an incredibly intellectually dishonest way by people who are opponents of Medicare for All. The argument is Medicare for All outlaws private insurance or takes away your private insurance. But that is an intellectually dishonest way of framing it because that makes it sound like your current coverage is going to be taken away and it's going to be replaced with God knows what. But the nature of the plan is if it is covered by the single payer, it cannot be covered by private insurance. So the corollary to that is if it isn't covered by the single payer, it can be provided by private insurance. So like supplemental insurance, things that aren't necessarily uh, needed, those can still be provided by private insurance, but anything that you that you need that is currently being covered by private insurance is going to automatically be covered by the single payer. So to claim that it's taking away health insurance is just bullcrap. It is intellectually dishonest. It is a bad talking point. You shouldn't fall for it. And any politician who tries to make that argument either doesn't know what they're talking about or is trying to lie to you. So now that we've gone over what exactly Medicare for All is, why don't you talk about Elizabeth's plan? Yeah. So Elizabeth's plan, and one of the important points about this is that she had been criticized because she refused to say that Medicare for All would raise taxes on the middle class. And in fact, I actually was thinking that was a legitimate criticism for a while because Bernie was straight up saying, yeah, no, it's going to raise taxes on the middle class. Now, important point to make about that, while it would raise taxes on the middle class, there would be significant savings for the middle class because uh, healthcare would be free at the point of service and you wouldn't have to deal with premiums. You wouldn't have to deal with deductibles. And, um, and ultimately you would save money. Elizabeth Warren's plan actually does not require any middle-class tax increase, which I think this is interesting because this gives her some ground to stand on from avoiding this question 
in, to begin with because uh, she hadn't released this plan yet. And it can now be argued that the reason why she wasn't saying that was because um, she wasn't going to commit to that because she was trying to work on a plan that would make it so she wouldn't have to do that. And that is one major difference that she has with Bernie's plan. Okay, so that's the big difference from Bernie's plan. So what exactly is her plan? One major aspect of the plan is, uh, first off, she juxtaposes it with the current system. So here are two options. Right now, uh, over the next decade, 24 million people won't have health coverage. Uh, 63 million people will have coverage gaps, and together, the American people, out of pocket, will pay $11 trillion of that bill themselves in the form of premiums, deductibles, co-pays, uh, out-of-network, and other expensive medical equipment, and care that they pay out of pocket. For the Medicare for All plan, every person in the United States is covered. Everybody gets the doctors and the treatments that they need when they need them, so there's no coverage gaps. And the $11 trillion in household insurance and out-of-pocket expenses will come mainly from the richest 1%. So I'm, I'm really curious. How is it possible to have a totally public healthcare plan that fills in all the holes we're talking about without yeah. raising taxes? Well, it, it does raise taxes, but not on the middle class. So it's important to juxtapose the cost of the total plan to the cost of uh, what the plan would be projected to begin with. So as it stands, we are projected to spend $52 trillion under the current system in all over the next decade. And, in, and Elizabeth Warren argues that in order to fit, in order for us to pay for it, there needs to be an increase in $20.5 trillion in federal spending. Okay, so where does that money come from? Well, that money comes from uh, several different places. First off, um, one of the one of the places that it comes from is the fact that uh, states who currently spend approximately six trillion dollars on uh, the chip program and Medicaid would now be fun funding that into the federal system. So that's where six trillion of it comes from. So, and that's just a readjustment uh, to the federal government. Um, another place it comes from, and this is this is a major place where it comes from, uh, employers who are currently the, the main source of revenue in this proposal, who are right now paying approximately nine trillion dollars into private uh, into private employee plans, that money then goes to the federal government instead of to private insurance companies. Now, this is actually a place where I might actually uh, I would actually have some arguments with because one of the pro-business plans involved in Medicare for All is if we take the money that employers are currently spending on healthcare and just make that no longer required, then that makes Medicare for All a lot more pro-business. So there could be some criticisms there, but that's one of the places where the money comes from. She also is arguing for an increase in her wealth tax uh, for people making billion a uh, billion dollars, um, and the increase would be from three percent to six percent, and that's estimated to produce another six trillion dollars in revenue, plus an additional two point three trillion dollars in revenue would come from improving tax enforcement. Part of this comes from the fact that you are reducing the cost of administration in hospitals, which again substantially reduces uh, the overall cost because. Uh, you're no longer having doctors negotiating and working on the phones with uh, uh, health insurance providers. So let me get this straight. 
her plan will cost the same amount of money over the next 10 years as keeping the current system. That's that's what she's that's what she's arguing, yes. And the increase in federal spending will be will come from um, cash that's already being spent on health care in other parts of the economy. Basically, yeah. it'll just be diverted to the federal government. Yeah, that uh, as well as um, some other as well as some other like tax increases on the rich. Another thing that kind of that adds a little bit more money is that although they won't be uh, paying taxes, they will be able to take home more money because they'll no longer be paying health premiums or copays, and that would be taxed at the normal rate, which would produce another one point four trillion dollars in revenue. That's pretty incredible. Yeah. One thing I want to go back to is also the fact that it will reduce the cost of administration for hospital hospitals. Hospitals and doctors spend a tremendous amount of money complying with the necess the necessities of dealing with private insurers. Um, and if you talk to doctors and medical students and hospital administrators, it's a miserable business. Yeah. And so the argument that we could actually make these critical people's lives and work better and at the same time provide better care to individuals is a pretty compelling one. She even projects that that could save approximately $350 billion a year. So the important thing about this plan overall is that she has now overcome a major weakness from criticisms that she's had both from the right flank and the left flank of the Democratic Party. You had leftists that were a little bit more concerned that when she gave the policy, it would be less than Medicare for all, and that's obviously not the case. And then you had people on the right flank of the Democratic Party that were that were criticizing her for not being upfront about the middle class tax increase, which apparently does not exist in her plan, and also not being upfront about how she's going to pay for it, which she is absolutely upfront about how she's going to pay for it here. So at this point, this takes away a lot of the ammunition that people had in arguing against uh, Elizabeth Warren as a candidate overall. So the important thing is that right now there is a competition, a healthy competition between Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to basically out-progressive themselves on plans. And I think this is an incredibly positive thing. I think that they're both great voices in the Democratic Party at this point. Um, I still support Bernie Sanders over Elizabeth Warren, but uh, the gap between them is definitely narrowing by the day in my mind. So uh, we have two great candidates, and I really hope that they, uh, I really hope that they go somewhere, and I really hope that the nominee is ultimately one of them. All right, and as it stands, uh, the polls are Biden at an average of 29.1, Warren at an average of 20.6, and Sanders at an average of 16.6. Biden has gone a little bit up, and uh, Bernie has kind of been, is uh, he's, he's gone up a little bit, and uh, he's starting to level out. Um, Buttigieg is also up a little bit uh, at 7.1%, but no one else really seems to be going anywhere. It's At this point, it's still definitely between Biden, Warren, and Sanders. I really don't see Buttigieg getting much traction, unless he does a lot better in Iowa than we think he might. And at this point, he's projected to do well in Iowa, but... He's still going to come in third. I, I think he's still going to come in third, ultimately. And if that does happen, then, yeah, he's going to get some delegates out of it, but it's not going to be enough to propel him that much.
so now, as we round out our second episode with you, um, we're just going to do our highlights of the week to end on a high note. So yeah. Nathan, what was your highlight of the week? Well, my highlight of the week was I recently got a video game that I've been waiting for for a very long time. It's called Outer Worlds. It's from Obsidian, the same people that made Fallout New Vegas. And it's a great freaking game. I've already beaten it. <laughs> it was amazing. It was a great experience. I'm probably going to play it again like later tonight while I'm editing this. And if you don't have it, you should definitely check it out. It's a wonderful RPG, and it was badass. And uh, I have probably two highlights. Um, I know that's a bit bending of the rules. One is my weekly highlight. I got to see Bree this past weekend, and we had a really nice time, and it was excellent. And my second one is just being really excited about the reception that we got last week in response to getting our podcast launched. It was really heartening um, and really exciting to see people responding well to what we were working on. And so, you know, keep listening. Yeah. That's the Perspectrum. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great week, y'all.